Hello, it's Meghna Chakrabarty, host of On Point. And before we start today's episode, I want to share a quick word about it. You'll be hearing a recording of On Point as it was broadcast live on Monday, October 16th. This episode features Khaled Khroub, a professor at Northwestern University in Qatar and a research associate at the Center of Islamic Studies at the University of Cambridge. Professor Khroub has written multiple books about Hamas and was on the program to provide a factual history of the Islamist group. As the program progressed, Professor Khroub expressed doubt that women and children had been killed by Hamas in its October 7th attack on Israel. I countered that moment with statements of fact to correct the record. But that does not negate the impact of hearing Professor Hrub's statements. On Point strives to contribute thoughtfully to the public discourse. And in an environment where misinformation is both rampant and dangerous, we want to acknowledge that this episode of On Point fell short of our editorial standards. It is very important for us to be transparent about that. Since the episode has already been broadcast live, the content is out there, and we don't want to hide from that fact. Our relationship with you is important. So should you decide to listen to this episode, I want to reiterate that we know it falls short of our standards and that we are committed to continuously improving what we do. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. The United States calls Hamas a foreign terrorist organization. It is also a political party and the ruling party in Gaza. It also carried out the most devastating attack on Israeli internal security in that country's history. And now Israel is retaliating with the full might of its military, and a ground war is expected soon. Israel says nothing short of the total eradication of Hamas will suffice. And Hamas has called for the destruction of Israel since its founding. So today, we want to get a deeper understanding of Hamas, its creation, what it stands for, what its aims are, and what its capabilities are now. To do that, we're joined today by Khaled Khroub. He's a professor at Northwestern University in Qatar, and he's the author of Hamas, A Beginner's Guide, and Hamas, Political Thought and Practice, and the forthcoming Gaza Tunnels, Dicing with Death, and he joins us from Doha. Professor Hrub, welcome to On Point. Uh, most welcome. Thank you very much. Um, Professor Hrub, I would actually like to begin in 1987 with this. So those are some sounds from the first intifada, or uprising. Now, for those who don't remember it, it was a largely spontaneous series of Palestinian demonstrations and mass boycotts and civil disobedience, which then later turned violent. And ultimately, the Israeli military responded and killed more than a thousand Palestinians. So, Professor Hrub, why is that date and the first intifada important in understanding how Hamas was founded? Uh, yes, uh, that date in 1987 uh, represents a turning point for the inter-Palestinian national movement, in fact, not only Hamas. Uh, uh, at that time, the inter-Palestinians in the Gaza Strip and in the West Bank revolted against the Israeli occupation. Um, before that date, the, there was no Hamas. Uh, 
instead we had the mother organization of Hamas that used to be the Palestinian Muslim Brotherhood. Mm-hmm. This organization was not kind of interested or engaged in any confrontational strategy against Israel or the occupation. They were busy in, in their charities, social networks, uh, religious uh, affairs, mosques, and, and the rest of it. So they were kind of somehow, I would say, on the margin of the political action within the Palestinian arena. Uh, the leadership in the or the mainstream nationalist factions were the maybe you know of the PLO, Fatah, mm-hmm. uh, and other nationalist and Marxist even organizations. By that year, 1987, all these factions took part in the uprising. Uh, the Islamist or the Palestinian Muslim Brotherhood thought at the time if we stayed on the side without engaging ourselves in the confrontations, we would lose even our membership. Mm. This is this is a moment that we have to decide. Either we stay on our social work kind of agenda and charities, or we gear up into confrontation and resistance against the Israeli occupation. Mm. And they chose the second, uh, let's say, uh, alternative. Yeah. And since then, since then, they became known as Hamas. And Hamas stands for Harakat al Mukawama al-Islamiyah, right? Or the Islamic yes. resistance movement in Hamas is an acronym yes. for that. Now, its founder uh, was Sheikh Ahmed Yassin. And as you mentioned, he was a, a member or the leader of the local Palestinian branch of the Muslim Brotherhood. He'd actually studied in Cairo, uh, what, in the in the 1960s. What is it about, about Yassin and his interpretation of, of Islam that convinced him that a move towards direct violent confrontation with Israel was the right thing to do. Yeah, the education of Sheikh Ahmed Yassin is the traditional Islamization uh, education that you can find with any Muslim uh, brotherhood organization in the region, be it in Egypt, in, in Jordan, Lebanon, in Morocco, and even beyond the Middle East. Uh, this education goes along these lines. One is... We need to Islamize our societies. So this is the belief of the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, Somehow connecting all the failures of the society, of the country, of the politics to one single reason, that people and governments have deviated from the true path of Islam. So we need them. We need them to bring back Islam into their personal life and their public life. And once this task is done at a larger scale, we can move on, we can improve our countries and we can we can advance to whatever kind of objective. Now, Ahmad Yassin, Sheikh Ahmad Yassin, basically believed in this and he was one of the founders of the Palestinian Muslim Brotherhood in the Gaza Strip because he was born there, he was, he immigrated there with his, uh, when he was expelled there with his family uh, from, uh, in 1994. And then he started his thinking about Palestine mm-hmm. and the Palestinian uh, Muslim Brotherhood thinking about Palestine is the following. That is now we are weak. We are deviated from religion. We need to bring back religion. And after that, only after that, after we are, after we strengthened our society with religion, we can move on to the next phase, which is confrontation with Israel. Now, uh, they continued for two, three decades doing this strategy. That is kind of only bringing religion back uh, from their perspective to the Palestinian society until the year 1987, when people were pointing at them, saying, you have, be- you have become a big organization and yet you are doing nothing 
in the field of resistance. You are doing nothing against Israel. So that was kind of, uh, uh, they were cornered by the Palestinian uprising and they needed to do something. Okay, so I want to just take a minute to understand more deeply, again, this foundational ideology that Hamas was created with, because I'm actually looking at a copy of the uh, founding charter uh, yeah. from 1988, uh, Hamas's original charter. And, and you're exactly right. I mean, it says here in Article 9 of the charter, it says the Islamic resistance movement found itself at a time where Islam has disappeared from life, right? Values are changed and evil people have taken control. Oppression and darkness prevail. And then it goes on to say that uh, in Article 12, nationalism, from the point of view of the Islamic resistance movement, is part of the religious creed. Nothing in nationalism is more significant or deeper than in the case when an enemy should tread Muslim land. So does that then directly directly relate to Hamas's, uh, you know, um, foundational posture against Israel, where in that same charter it says, Israel will exist and continue to exist until Islam will obliterate it? Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, the, this charter, in fact, one have to uh, one should say, has become kind of obsolete early on. It was kind of from the perspective of Hamas, and I have written about this in my books. I examined the charter in 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 the minute details. In <laughs> fact, uh, it was written by one single person, and the movements, the leaders themselves, they tried all the time to distance themselves from the charter. Nevertheless, it stays as uh, an official document of the movement until 2017. We will come to this in a moment. Mm. But anyway, in the charter, there is a move from a mo- an organization that used to be totally, almost completely religious in the decades of 1950s, 1960s, and 70s to a new organization that has been uh, since then importing nationalistic kind of uh, tones and the tropes into their own religious discourse. So from that time onward, we used we we have become uh, we have we have started witnessing two components within the ideology of Hamas. One religious, that is the legacy of the previous decades, the Muslim Brotherhood, and now a new component coming from the nationalist sphere, the mm-hmm. nationalist engagement of them in the wider and the broader uh, Palestinian politics and Palestinian resistance. And these two components, the nationalist and the religious, they're still uh, functioning, sometimes in harmony within Hamas, sometimes with some sort of friction, tension, and even confrontation, Mm. depending on the given circumstances of the time and the place. Okay. So um, we're headed towards our first break in just a minute or two, but Professor Haroub, before we get there, I would like to get some just crystal clear um, analysis on a very, very important uh, aspect of Hamas about, you know, its history of calling for the destruction of Israel. So first of all, just I'm going to play two little moments here. Uh, This is from uh, 2019, and you'll hear Fatih Hamad, senior member of Hamas then, calling for the mass murder of Jews via suicide bombings. So Hamad there says, uh, in part, we must attack every Jew on the face of the earth to slaughter and kill them with the help of Allah. 
All of the Palestinian people are prepared to explode with suicide vests. We built in a factory. And then he goes on and he calls upon Palestinians in the West Bank. He says, how long will you sit quietly? We want you to wield your knives. How much does a knife cost? Five shekels. How much will it cost us to cut a Jew's throat? Okay, so that's from 2019. And then here we have Hamas official Osama Hamdan speaking just last Wednesday. And Hamdan says, Hamas has just one no, no to the existence of Israel. I believe that Israel is at the heart of the problem in our region and that once Israel is gone from this region and an opportunity to resolve all of the problems in this region will be opened. So, Professor Krub, has uh, Hamas ever moved away from its opposition to Israel's existence? Yes. Uh, now, uh, two things, in fact. One is the official documentation of Hamas's position. This is on the one hand. Second thing is the rhetorical discourse that one could kind of see here and there from some of its kind of leaders and, and figureheads. And you can see, as you have already uh, played in, in, in this uh, segment, you see sometimes some, some sort of uh, contradiction, which is clearly. Now, Hamas's justification of this would say the rhetorical statements are meant for mobilization. One should uh, place them within their own context, uh, be it uh, the last one, you know, Hamdan's uh, statement or the previous one. You have kind of uh, clashes and people were killed in Jenin mm -hmm. refugee camp in the West Bank, uh, mostly innocent peoples, and then uh, the Hawara kind of massacre. So you have some given context to these statements and that one should kind of include. This is, of course, Professor I'm, Krub, just, I, I'm just going to give you, sorry to interrupt, but I want to let you finish your thoughts uh, uh, at ease. But we have to take a break here in 15 seconds. So when we come back, we'll continue this portion of our conversation. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for On Point comes from BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? BetterHelp Online Therapy can help you figure out what's most important to you so you can prioritize it. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com onpoint today to get 10% off your first month. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and we're joined today by Professor Khaled Khrub. He's a professor at Northwestern University in Qatar, and he's author of Hamas, A Beginner's Guide, and Hamas, Political Thought and Practice. And Professor Khrub, I apologize for having had to interrupt you, but you were talking about um, what you identified as contradictions regarding what Hamas says its goals are vis-a-vis -vis Israel, that uh, part of its violent rhetoric about the destruction of Israel was for rhetorical purposes primarily. So tell me more. 
Yeah, I was saying, you know, all these kind of rhetorical statements should be placed within their own context. Uh, at this very moment, for example, you know, what Osama Hamdan is saying is, goes in tandem with what's happening in, in the Gaza Strip. So he thinks he needed kind of to raise the discourse, you know, people are dying in Gaza, more, more than 3,000 and the rest of it. So he cannot kind of lower his discourse when Palestinians are kind of dying. And this goes, you know, across the board with other Palestinian factions. You can see more, more of a nationalistic kind of discourse and even radical one um, goes up uh, in parallel to the circumstances on the ground. In the times of more, let's say, of, of political quiet, uh, maybe promising and some hopes in the horizon, you will see the tone, discourse and the statements are totally different. This is why I am saying you can feel this kind of contradiction. But at the end of the day, if you ask Hamas leaders, let's say Khalid Mash'al, the day before yesterday, he is the head of political bureau of Hamas outside Palestine. He said clearly that we, we with other Palestinians, we accept the notion of a Palestinian state within the borders of 1967. So that is the official uh, statement, and this is stated in their documentation. Uh, now, the rhetorical ones are meant for mobilization, for, meant for internal kind of uh, 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 dynamics with the Palestinian peoples in the street, and specifically in the times of the crisis, uh, Israel attacks, aggressions, and, and wars. So yes, you have these kind of two discourses uh, in play mm. and functioning to serve different purposes most of the time. Okay. Well, so... Um... I have to say that I'm suffering a little bit of cognitive dissonance in um, it, we should always place things in their proper context. And I appreciate that you did that, Professor Hru. But the cognitive dissonance that I have here is the the um, the extreme rhetoric. And you are correct. Uh, it is not unique to Hamas uh, about uh, uh, the destruction of the enemy. But it seems consistent as a rhetorical tool uh, with Hamas. And the, the thing I don't understand We'll return to the historical um, analysis in just a moment. But what I don't understand is if if Hamas, as you said, also is saying what just last week that they would accept the uh, a Palestinian state within the borders of uh, from 1967, I'm still completely confounded about what Hamas hoped to gain by its gruesome attacks last week. Because certainly they had to know that Israel wasn't going to respond, you know. Without uh, massive use of force, or that it would, you know, do anything other than harden the current Israeli government's view uh, of the Palestinian territories. So that too seems to be a contradiction that I cannot understand. Yes, uh, let me first make a comment on the first one, and then I come back. I come back to the uh, your point, the second point, which is very important. Uh, you know, when within our kind of academic uh, studies uh, circles and, and and articles, we all the time we examine kind of discourse analysis and how people, politicians specifically, talk, even the double talk of politicians. Uh, let me kind of uh, remind you with what the Israeli Defense Minister said. That is, you know, the Palestinians are human animals. Now, one could say, well, this is the this is the position of the the official position of Israel, or this is kind of a rhetorical maybe statement said by even if it, he was an official, but it doesn't mean that this is kind of the the normative line of of, of the country. So you and I can take you. I, one can kind of draw a line of the same statements 
Israel statements that go back maybe for 30, 40, 50 years. Mm-hmm. So you have this kind of double double uh, speech most of the time across the board in wherever you go, any country, America, anyway. Anyway, so moving to the next point, which is uh, uh, the largest scale operation that we have seen on the 7th of October. That was surprised everybody, uh, of course, me included. Uh, I've been closely studying and examining Hamas. And I was surprised, you know, by the scale of the operation. Uh, and then I kept kind of looking into it, uh, examining uh, the details that were kind of emerging here of here and there. And finally, I came up with my own conclusion uh, as follows. I think, you know, this operation was not a plan to be as big as, as, as it was. Initially, and we know this from previous attempts by Hamas, initially they wanted to have uh, a short, limited, swift operation by which they could kidnap maybe two, three soldiers and then use them for uh, to exchange with the prisoner Palestinian and the prisoners 5001 in, in Israeli uh, prison. Uh, however, once they succeeded in the first maybe a couple of hours, they were stunned themselves by the easiness of, of, of their success. And then they started kind of having maybe uh, in the field ad hoc decisions to expand the operation, moving from one one site to another, one settlement to another, one Israeli t- town to another. And even now they would discover that is there are no kind of Israel, proper Israeli defense or military in, in these uh, spots. And the temptation of, of scoring a, a great victory against the most powerful army in the Middle East, I think uh, seduced them, kind of implicated them in something that they never planned uh, in the first place because there was no no second phase. There was no planning to what will happen on the next day. Okay, you did this, this victory or you name it, whatever you like, but what are the consequences? We have learned over the past years that if Hamas takes uh, uh, as big of a step as this one, there should be some sort of political calculations and mm. a plan after that. But for this one, there is no, no no phase two. This is why I am more inclined to this conclusion that is initially it was it was meant to be to a much smaller scale, but they got tempted, you know, once they succeeded. Mm. Um. I just have one quick follow-up on that, uh, Professor, and then we'll go back to the really understanding the history of Hamas. Uh, but uh, I will fully always acknowledge uh, the tragedies that happen with a that happen with asymmetries of power, right? Um, and that yes, in the history of the multiple conflicts between Israel uh, and the Palestinian, thousands of Palestinian civilians have been killed. Those are truths. But in terms of Hamas's goals, if they had any, they they also deliberately targeted civilians. Um, you know, whether or not they expected to be successful, there were Hamas fighters that shot Jewish children in their bed. They went to kibbutzes, for goodness sake, which largely have, which some of them are largely center-left, for example. That's not necessarily like a, a hotbed of uh, Israeli right-wing extremism. Why target those places? What kind of uh, what kind of uh, victory does that give to Hamas, other than just the sheer Islamist victory of having killed Jews? 
This is the point. I think uh, we have been misled by so many. I am not kind of apologizing, neither kind of uh, defending or, or anything. But I, I haven't seen any kind of credible media reporting, at least about the latest incident in the 7th of October, of, of, of killing civilians in this manner. Uh, we have we have read, of course, you know, the beheading of 40 babies and raping women and all of that. And of course, when you hear these things, I myself, I was shocked. And then it turned out to be kind of fabricated and all of that. The only source of information for us, for me as an academic, is the Israeli source, uh, which has fed the media from day one with kind of misinformation. So I think we need kind of to pause for a while objectively speaking, and wait for some kind of a credible second, maybe party verification of what really happened on the ground. Because on Hamas's side, I can kind of uh, tell you with three major statements. One, with the military um, leader of Hamas, the, this mysterious unknown leader, Mohammed al-Daif, he said on day one, 7th of October, on his speech, this is on the record, he said, don't kill any child, any woman, don't even... Uh, hit a tree, and these are kind of from the um, let's say Islamic tradition in, in 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 conducting war. You are not allowed to hit women, children, and even trees. So he said this publicly on the record. So if these are kind of the instructions to his men, what happened exactly? Are these kind of figures civilians? How many really civilians? How many soldiers? All these figures are coming from from one source only. We don't have any. Uh, a cross-examination of these figures. That said, however, Hamas itself, on the other hand, they said publicly, since 1996, they have been, they issued uh, a couple of, well, not a couple, every two, three years, you, they would confirm the same kind of offer, if you like, saying, we are asking Israel, we are offering as the enemy to neutralize killing civilians from both sides. If they stop killing civilians on other side, we will definitely, we will, the second day, we will stop killing civilians on the Israeli side. And that was kind of rejected all the time from the Israeli side. So it's kind of more complicated than to be black and white. On the Palestinian side, uh, and this is, uh, this is academically kind of uh, confirmed statistics, you have a ratio of 15, of 10 to 15 Palestinians, civ civilian Palestinians killed for every uh, Israeli civilian killed on the, the other side. This mm. applies to the past 20, 30 years. So people kind of wonder, including Hamas, what is the point of only kind of focusing on the civilians on the Israeli side while the civilians on the Palestinian side, side all the time been kind of uh, ignored, more or less. Yes, no, that that point is well, very well taken, uh, Professor. But um, I, I would just like to uh, uh, say that we do know for sure the targets of Hamas's uh, attack last week, right? I mean, there's no denying that people in, a, in kibbutzes were attacked, that uh, music and lovers at an at a Israeli rave were, were attack, uh, attacked. We have people saying that they were on their phone, on the phone with loved ones as those loved ones were trying to protect their children from being shot. So I would say there is ample evidence that um, civilians were targeted and killed uh, on October 7th. But your point about the uh, Again, the um, disproportionate deaths is is also well taken o over time. 
Let's return for a moment to the the history of Hamas and its um, again its uh, its purpose and goals. I heard you a little earlier saying that the um, the original charter from 1988 is moot essentially, and there was a new one as yeah. of the you know 2015 2016 or some in the mid two, early 2000s. Um, so I, I will appreciate your correction on something I'm about to say, but because from the first uh, charter, under a section about peaceful solutions initiatives and international conferences, it says, uh, so-called peaceful solutions initiatives and international conferences are in contradiction to the principles of the Islamic resistance movement. So I have a couple of statements here from um, Sheikh Ahmed Yassin, again, founder of Hamas. This is from... October of 1988, where he attacked the land for peace deal that had been struck between the U.S., Israel and uh, Palestinians. He said the agreement would not end the suffering of the Palestinian people and that Hamas would continue to fight Israeli occupation. So he says there Hamas will continue to be alive, it will continue to fight, and will be leading the movement in the Arab world to liberate Palestine. Those who think that the military wing of Hamas will end their fight are dreamers. Then in July of 2000, uh, Yassin again called uh, for the Palestinian, then-Palestinian uh, leader Yasser Arafat to abandon peace talks at Camp David. He said that any agreement reached was doomed to fail— uh, and the Palestinians would, would suffer as a result. And he pledged Hamas would continue, continue its armed struggle against Israel. So Yassin there saying, we will consider any agreement in Camp David a failing agreement because it does not inspire the Palestinians and does not achieve the aspirations of the Palestinians. And the whole of the Palestinian people in all its branches refuses any agreement that does not give them land, nationhood, and a future. This is refused by us and by all Palestinians. So, uh, Professor Hrub, I keep playing tape from Yassin because uh, until he was... uh, assassinated by an Israeli airstrike. You know, he was this, both the founder and the spiritual leader of Hamas. Can, can you identify uh, at any point in time when Hamas was a good faith partner in the multiple efforts towards peace agreements uh, uh, between Israel uh, and the Palestinian people? Yes. Uh, well, these are kind of very telling, uh, of course, uh, statements by Yassin. And, you know, if you play these statements now to many Palestinians, their reaction would be to agree with him, saying, yeah, your prophecy was very correct. Because these, these the, especially Oslo Accords in 1993, had this great promise back then. Uh, and high hopes within many Palestinians were kind of uh, expected. That is, by, the ni- by 1999, according to those agreements, a Palestinian state, independent Palestinian state, uh, should be given to the Palestinians and they will enjoy their freedom and dignity. Now, Hamas back then uh, opposed these uh, accords, saying they are unjust, the premise of them, their components, their elements, this and that. Anyway, but most of the Palestinians, they supported the Oslo Agreement, hoping, not because they maybe believed in them, but out of desperation, saying this is the only way, and let's ha- let's pin our hopes on them. Now, after 30 years of these agreements, these agreements brought nothing to the Palestinians, neither a Palestinian state nor their land kind of liberated nothing, but 
the expansion of settlements and 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 the loss and loss, more loss of their own rights. So I think it's very ironic, uh, Magna, mm. if playing these kind of statements, they would kind of remind the Palestinians that oh, oh Hamas was was completely right, and in fact, because of this, in two thousand and six, when the Palestinian elections took place, Hamas won the elections mm-hmm. because the Palestinians they had to think between two choices. One choice was Oslo Accords that that uh, had failed back then and the so-called resistance choice that was advocated by Hamas. So out of despair, out of the failure of others, the failure of the Oslo track, people started to believe in Hamas's kind of uh, statements. Maybe Hamas never had a clear-cut strategy and they don't have a clear-cut strategy. What would happen next and what are the next phases? But uh, at least compared to the failure of the other strategy, that is the peace talks, they started voting for Hamas. Mm. So the the uh, in ironically speaking, there is another kind of added irony if you if you allow me. Yeah, well, actually, I'll allow you right when we come back from from our break, which we're just 20 seconds away from. Um, and before we do that, I'm going to say it's it's hard not to wonder how the outcomes of these various peace attempts might have been if Hamas had been uh, more of an active uh, and good faith participant. But we'll hear about those elections when we come back. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And today, Professor Khaled Khroub joins us. We're trying to understand better Hamas, uh, its history, its actions, and its intentions. Uh, and just before the break, we were coming up right against the very surprising moment in 2006 where Hamas won elections in Gaza. So here's a couple of moments from that uh, that rather historic uh, election. At a news conference, Ismail Haniya, senior Hamas politician, called on the United States to respect those 2006 results. On the American 
And Hania there says the American administration must respect the Palestinian people's will and must respect the results of the ballot boxes, especially that the Hamas movement is not coming to the political field by itself, but also with all the Palestinian people and factions. Of course, uh, reaction from Israel, the United States and others was quite different. Again, in 2006, here's a clip of Ron Cohen, an Israeli member of the Knesset, reacting to the electoral victory, saying he feared the worst, but hoped for the best. First of all, it's clear that this is a very, very bad result for the Palestinians and for Israel. Unfortunately, that was a, a great success of the uh, terrorist organization of the Hamas. Uh, I wish, first of all, Abu Mazen to continue in his uh, job as the president of the Palestinian people about the solution of two states for Israel and the Palestinians. In this case, it means that the Hamas will recognize the state of Israel as a Jewish state. And in this case, it will be possible to negotiate with them. That's Ron Cohen, member of the Israeli Knesset, in 2006. So, Professor Harub, tell us a, a little bit more about the significance of Hamas's win in 2006. It has been in power in Gaza ever since then. I don't believe there's been an election thereafter. I mean, how would you evaluate Hamas's rule in Gaza to the Gazan people? Uh, yes, Magda, a couple of points. One is about, you know, Hamas's victory in 2006. That was very surprising, as we have all established, uh, surprising themselves, first of all, uh, Israel, the PLO, the America, and everybody. Um, now, they they became kind of trapped by that victory. They didn't know, they weren't prepared uh, for this. They didn't plan for it. They wanted to have maybe a big share in in the legislative council to protect themselves to the, to become kind of part of the official system, Palestinian system, but not kind of to be in power because being in power of the Palestinian Authority, by that time, 2006, discredited in the eyes of many Palestinians. This authority is, in fact, the product of Oslo Accords that, again, ironically, Hamas itself rejected. So there is a paradox. A paradox that neither Hamas nor other Palestinian factions could could deal with. That is, Hamas is in power in the driving seat of a system, which is the Palestinian Authority, that it itself rejected from the very beginning. This is the outcome of Oslo Agreement. Now, all this under, of course, the Israeli control and Israeli occupation. There is no sovereignty, no independence. So people started to ask Hamas, what are you doing there? What, are, what can you deliver? Can you deliver something else than the PLO or Mahmoud Abbas could do over the past years? And have so they? You, no, they have not in terms of the politics, in terms of the, let's say, political aspirations of the Palestinians, independence and the determination, the big, the big issues, Jerusalem, the refugees. But that paradox, that kind of contradiction in the system, at the end of the day, collapsed. Collapsed to the point of having the Palestinians split between two entities, one in the Gaza Strip where Hamas retreated to its main stronghold, and the other one, the West Bank, where Abu Mazen and the PLO uh, regained, let's say, uh, their place in the West Bank. And since then, we are having these two uh, Palestinian entities somehow competing with each other, all ironically speaking, under the uh, overarching Israeli control. Now, in Gaza Strip, Coming to your point, if they have delivered, you know, good governance, you have somehow mixed uh, balance sheet. Uh, 
in certain ways, you know, the kind of their discipline way of, of controlling, they have been seen as uh, clean-handed and, and all of that. This is at the one level. On the other level, they were seen kind of imposing their uh, security grip on the Gaza Strip. Uh, sometimes they were kind of tempted to impose even some social and religious kind of code of conduct, especially in the early years of their rule. And then they relaxed this, these kind of uh, policies. Uh, they claim, and with them a big part of the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip, that in inside the Gaza Strip you cannot see any any uh, sign of the occupation, any sign of the Israeli occupation. Mm. Unlike the West Bank, mm. where you have the military army, the Israeli army all over the place. So they have, they have at the nationalist, nationalist level, they can claim that we have at least in part liberated the Gaza Strip internally. Yes, it's controlled from the outside, but internally there is no existence to, the, to Israel. However, in, oh, go no, go ahead and finish that thought because I want to just yeah. yeah up the with final that. thing, yeah. the final thing that is at the national level, at the social, at the social, let's say, economic uh, level, uh, health service, let's say, uh, the unemployment, the economy, poverty, in these kind of aspects of life, uh, they are not given any credit because uh, the situation was going from bad to worse. Yes. Uh, so, in all indices of these. Um, respects the Palestinians have been um, crying out and criticizing Hamas for ah. not kind of delivering or managing uh, an end to this kind of misery in the Gaza Strip. Right. So because there's, you know, there's multiple sides to a coin in governing uh, in in yeah. this region, right? Because there's the reality of both uh, Israel and Egypt at times creating those blockades. Understood. Uh, but as you said. The, uh, uh, the the Palestinian people also look to Hamas as being failed in some very critical uh, internal leadership metrics in Gaza. I mean, I'm looking here, this is from the U U.S. Federal Reserve, that per capita um, GDP for for Gaza, um, this is just, I'm just trying to look for numbers that, that uh, give us some kind of, in, you know, recognizable measure. It's less than $4,000 per person. So is that the kind of thing that you're saying, that the Palestinian people look to Hamas and say, you haven't meaningfully improved our, our lives? Yes, you have kind of, you have these voices criticizing Hamas. Then Hamas, you know, pushes back saying, you know, it's the blockade, it's Israel. I mean, we have nothing, we, we cannot do whatever we wanted to do. So you have all these kind of debates back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. But at the end of the day, the people, they suffer on a daily basis. They say whoever is was responsible. The end result is the conditions in the Gaza Strip, the unemployment in itself is the highest in the world. Yeah, yeah. So these kind of figures at the end of the day, the outcome of, of the past years of the blockade and Hamas's rule. Uh, since 2006, as we've noted, right? Yes. Okay, so Professor Krub, stand by for a moment, because I want to bring Michael Eisenstadt into the conversation now. He's director of the Military and Security Studies Program at the Washington Institute for Near East Peace. Uh, Michael, welcome to On Point. How are you doing? It's Middle East policy, Near East policy, I'm sorry. Near East policy, I should have yes. known that. We've talked to the <laughs> Institute for a long time. Well, well, we're all for peace. Too. Today is a day of typos. My apologies. Um, okay, so we want to get a sense from you uh, about uh, 
your evaluation of Hamas's current sort of military capabilities and strategies. But in order to do that, I want to just spend one minute or a minute or two reminding folks about things that Hamas has uh, has uh, activated or, or attacks they've done in the past, because we haven't yet mentioned that, of course, they have successfully uh, uh, used suicide bombers multiple times inside of Israel. Um, and then in uh, back in 2014, in that uh, previous major battle between Israel and Hamas, when Israeli forces heavily bombed Gaza, then Hamas leader Khaled Meshal spoke with the BBC. And we have a clip of that because he de- denied that Hamas was using civilian locations as hiding places for rockets. And the BBC reporter asked specifically about reports that Hamas had stored rockets at a school. With respect, this is not something that has come from Israel. This is the UN Relief and Works Agency, which has said that up to 20 rockets were deposited in a school building inside Gaza. They are furious. The uh, Secretary General of the United Nations has expressed his outrage. He said those responsible are turning schools into potential military targets and endangering the lives of innocent children. This is not true. Rocket launchers in Gaza belong to the resistance. They are underground, and Israel is unable to reach them. This is why it pretends they are in civilian areas. Israel is hitting hospitals, mosques, towers and buildings. It committed a massacre in Shuja'iya, Tufaha district. This is a butchery in Gaza, and the world is sitting idle, and it blames Hamas. So that was in 2014. And just for clarity, the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees uh, is the one who discovered 20 rockets hidden in a Gaza Strip school. And in their press release, they said this is a flagrant violation of the inviability of its premises under international law. Now, Michael, I wanted to bring that into the context because I wonder how you evaluate uh, Hamas's historical military strategy versus what you saw uh, last week. Well, I mean, look, they've, they've undergone a dramatic transformation since the late 80s and early 1990s, where they were an underground terrorist organization which focused on suicide bombings to disrupt the um, Oslo process, the nascent Israeli-Palestinian peace process. And that still remains central to their strategy, because uh, I think most people are have come to the conclusion that the main reason for this attack last week was to disrupt the possibility of normalization between Saudi Arabia and Israel, which they felt would um, marginalize Hamas, strengthen the PA potentially, and and, and potentially marginalize the Palestinian cause. So this was an attempt by them to undermine the prospects for broadening peace between Israelis and Arabs, and also as part of their struggle against the PA in order to be able to seize the high ground as the champions of the Palestinian cause, and to get back um, the 5,000 Palestinians that are in prison in Israel. I'll just mention in 2006, the Hamas um, kidnapped an Israeli soldier, Gilad Shalit, um, and held him for, I think, five years. Um, And in the prison uh, swap that was achieved in order to uh, gain his freedom, they were able to get back a thousand prisoners, many of whom are now the senior leadership of Hamas in Gaza. Mm -hmm. So kidnapping has um, been very successful for them as a technique. I'll just say that also, you know, embedding within the civilian population, I mean, from their point of view, it makes military sense, but it greatly complicates um, Israel's uh, military efforts to get at Hamas and to harm its 
uh, military capabilities. It also um, ensures that many Palestinians, unfortunately, civilians are killed in the process, which further um, deepens hate. And even those Palestinians who don't support Hamas will be inclined to be against peace because of the suffering that they've incurred. And it also wins uh, support internationally, but they're able to provide this narrative that the Palestinians are suffering under mm. the uh, uh, you know, Israeli military um, a- action. Mm. So, you know, now, the thing is also they've been put great emphasis in recent uh, last decade and a half in building underground. Right. And there are, they have claimed, uh, Hamas officials have claimed that there are over 500 kilom- kilometers of tunnels under Gaza. Um, now, these tunnels are for the exclusive use of their military organization, not for allowing civilians to shelter um, and, and, and to be protected against, um, you know, Israeli military activities, but simply just for the use of um, Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad. And one wonders if all the resources that had gone in to building these temples, uh, excuse me, building these tunnels, as well as uh, building Hamas's military capabilities to the point that they now have between 30,000 and 40,000 fighters, if that had gone into improving the standard of living of Palestinians and creating a successful um, statelet in Gaza, the situation yes. might be much different. Yeah. There. You know, uh, we also haven't uh, had a chance to exclu- exclu- uh, exclusively uh, uh, talk about Hamas's relationship with Iran in terms of funding uh, and even Iranian-supplied Weapons. We could do a whole nother hour on that, but I just wanted to make note of it. Uh, and Michael, we've only got about a minute and a half left, and then I want to give uh, Professor Hrub uh, one more uh, swing at, at the plate here. But how do you think that Hamas links its military actions of recent, uh, recently to its long-term strategic goals? Because that, again, it's a question I turn to Professor Hrub, and I, and I, just, I just can't, I can't um, figure it out. Okay, yeah. one of the things, one ways that I think is connected in terms of their long-term goal of d- destroying Israel and creating an Islamic state in, you know, what they call the historic Palestine from the river to the sea, is to undermine um, Israeli social cohesion and demoralize Israelis. One thing they do, very often they attack on Jewish holidays, which are supposed to be a time of when families are together and of joy, and to make even the holidays uh, times of, of, of intense mourning. So this is part of a long-term protracted multi-generational struggle um, to create Israel, to create a situation in Israel where really um, living in Israel becomes intoler- intolerable for Jews, and those who have an option leave the country and go elsewhere. So, and, and that also fits in with um, Iran's long-term strategy of encircling Israel by um, a series of militias armed with, you know, rockets and missiles that can go to war with Israel every year or every two years and just make life in Israel untenable, dry up investment in Israel, and um, contribute to the long-term goal of, of leading to the destruction of Israel. Mm. So that's, that's how I, I kind of see it. There are short-term goals that they were trying to achieve that are more tactical, but this is part of a long-term strategy of demoralization and undermining the resolve and staying power of your enemy and causing people to eventually leave. Yeah. Okay, so Professor Hrub, we have about mm, 20 seconds left. I'll give you the last word here today. Yeah, I think I disagree with that because now uh, it has been clearly outlined in Hamas's documentation, Hamas's documents, statements, and 
and all of that, they are in line with the vast majority of the Palestinians, including the PLO and Fatah, in accepting a state in 1967 borders. This is officially declared. This is officially now the main the main line of Hamas's politics. Now, the destruction of Israel kind of sloganeering is not doesn't exist even in the charter. We haven't had the chance to to talk about this. But I translated the charter. I know it in Arabic. The, the phraseology of this does not even exist in the very original charter that has been even obsolete in its in itself years after. Well, Professor Khaled Khroub, professor at Northwestern University in Qatar, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And Michael Eisenstadt at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, thank you as well. I know there's a lot of aspects of Hamas and a lot of questions we didn't get to, but uh, you can always call us at 617-353-0683 and let us know what you want to know. This is On Point.